0: All right, so whether you're joining us for the first time this week or you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, we've been in the sermon series titled um, Following Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 8 to 10. And throughout this series, we're discovering how Jesus defines what a true disciple looks like. And as you hold up Jesus' words and his ways next to our lives, our hope has been to get you to ask yourself Am I really a disciple? If the answer is an immediate no, we want to follow up with, are you ready then to follow Jesus? And so to recap where we left off last week, Pastor Eric gave us the words on Jesus' further demonstrations of authority through miracles. And he shared that he was kind of struggling with the idea of how am I going to continue to unpack the power and the depth and the meaning of all of these miracles. In fact, he's going to be preaching on miracles next week too. But I love what he shared on this and the paradigm that he suggested on this. First, he said, the Holy Spirit speaks and reveals the truth to us, no matter how many times we might reread the same passage or a similarly themed passage, in this case, miracles. So what I took away from that was we must be in communion with the Holy Spirit, speak to him, and more importantly, allow him to speak to us as we wait on him. Second, the miracles of Jesus aren't meant for us to simply see him as a magician, that he just did this and that, but they ultimately point toward who he really is. He's a healer of sin and sickness. He's a teacher of truth in love, and he is all-powerful God. And thirdly, the miracles point to something in us. I know I often read scripture and I think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not this person or that. How could they be so dense? But no, the reaction of the people witnessing the miracles point to their posture and their heart, and we are no better or different. It is essentially a mirror to our condition. So I'd like to continue to work within this framework. And in this passage that we're about to read, we see Jesus who calls to follow, who he calls to follow, and how he calls us to live as disciples of Christ. So if you're able, as a means of positioning ourselves in reverence of his holy and inerrant word, would you please rise for the reading of today's passage? The word comes to us this day in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, and I'll be reading from the ESV. And once I've completed the reading, I'll say, this is the word of God, to which you will all respond. Thanks be to God. And once I've prayed for us, I'll I'll, uh, have us seated. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word that you make so readily available to us. It is a lamp unto our feet, guiding our every step. And so, Lord, I ask God, at this time, would you reveal to us, illuminate the truth of what you're saying here in your people, in our hearts, so that we can then live this out out of the freedom and the joy of knowing you and calling Christ our Lord and Savior, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. Have you ever felt that you didn't belong? You know, I know maybe for some of us it might be a traumatic experience to relive, but try to imagine for me, with me, for a moment. Where were you? How old were you, the location, season of life? Who were you with? Some of your friends, your family, coworkers, or just out and about with strangers? Perhaps more importantly, who made you feel like you didn't belong? We're all thinking about this. I'll share a little bit story, a a quick little story of when I felt like I didn't belong, okay? So before I went into ministry, all of my adult life, I was a, a musician, a freelance musician. Yeah, I was really bringing in the dough, right? No. But looking from one job to the next, I was always moving and thinking, how can I you know, make ends meet? And so I stumbled upon an audition call for musicians on the Disney Careers website. And it was a call for jazz guitarists. So I studied jazz guitar in college, so I was like, this is for me, this is right down my alley, and more so because they were saying we're gonna be playing um, in the style of the Roaring Twenties. Like, oh man, I love this stuff. And I got so excited for various reasons, right? If you get a job at Disney, you're so legit, right? And you get uh, to join the union, you get a regular stable paying gig, and it ups your resume. And so I went to the audition, there must have been about 50 people or so just for my time slot. And I'm not trying to disparage any older folks, but most of them, when I got in, were middle-aged and up. And I was maybe one of the few younger folks there. Not to only mention, though, that I was also the only Asian-American there. Not too many Asian folks. Folks, I guess, uh, playing jazz guitar in the 20s, so I don't know. But we were given sheet music and a script. Okay, so this was kind of like what is happening. I thought I was just supposed to play music like in the corner on a stage, uh, but this job description was something new. It said, you have to perform and you have to memorize this script. And I'm like, no, I didn't go to school for that. I didn't. I, I'm not an actor. That's not me. So in that quick moment, I tried to learn the song that they gave us. And then the script. I'm so nervous at this point. And mind you, if you think about the Roaring Twenties, right? What's the style of the music? It's very very upbeat, right? But no, when I got in, (laughs) I was so nervous. I closed my eyes so tight, and I just started to sing it like it was a ballad. Like I was like crooning. I was like, I think it goes without saying I didn't get it. And a few months later, I go to California Adventure where they were actually debuting this act, and I witnessed the show and I was like, yeah, no, there's no way I could have qualified for that. So if any one of you are artists or if you've done anything, you know, in the world of auditioning to get a job, or even if you're just, if you've done an interview for a work on any field, you know what it feels like to trying to will your way into qualifying for a job. It's really not nice, right? And I think we as humans naturally operate within the system of qualifications to decide whether someone belongs somewhere, with somebody, or within an institution. And here in our first point, we see Jesus calling someone who utterly lacks the qualifications to be a disciple. And so our first point here is in following Jesus, we must heed the call of Jesus. I know many of us who've grown up in the church or Some of us who might be history buffs would know that tax collectors in the Jewish communities of the ancient Greco-Roman world were despised. But allow me to contextualize this for us so we look through the lens of the worldview on whether Matthew qualifies as Jesus' disciple. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors to their people because they were doing the bidding of the Roman Empire by collecting unfair tax rates from its citizens. In addition, they would nickel and dime the people for more money that they would then pocket for themselves on top of already a hefty pay. So they're traitors to their people by pledging allegiance to the government that is oppressing their nation, and they are extortionists, gaining even more wealth by unethical means. Tax collectors were hated not only by the Jewish community, but by other neighboring ethnic states under Roman rule. So in King James Version, I know it's like who, who even reads the King James Version anymore, but in verse nine, this is a very important point I wanted to uh, mention. Matthew was sitting at the, it says that Matthew was sitting at the receipt of customs. And this detail is to share that Matthew wasn't just any old tax collector right, sitting at a shack or however you might view a tax collector to be, but one who taxed people and goods that were arriving and departing from the port of Capernaum, of the business of import and export. So we could speculate then from this information that Matthew was a very worldly person who knew all about the who's who and what's of the world, which I think paints him as a more devious and scheming character who benefited benefited greatly from his post. And as one who was shunned by his people and viewed as someone beyond redemption, who had chosen money over love, mercy, kindness, we see for some reason that Jesus calls him to follow him. Now, if we've been tracking, as I mentioned, to look at Matthew's credentials through the world's view, I think we'd all agree that he would not qualify or belong in Jesus's crew. The world's view of qualification comes in the form of proving oneself by their skill set, by their contribution, their sense of worth and status in society. And this echoes in our day as well. Think about this. Anyone here love competition reality TV shows? Don't be shy. Oh, I see one there. What do these shows all start off with? What's their pitch in their first opening scene, right? Something like we scoured the nation, the world of the best dancer, singer, chef, model, fill in the blank. And we have them fighting, competing, striving to prove that they have what it takes to be the best. Thousands of contestants, only one will win. Who deserves and qualifies to be recognized? This is the world that we live in. And of all the religious leaders, good and honest working folks that Jesus could have chosen to follow him, Jesus chooses Matthew. And while he's in his place of business at that. So what does it say Matthew does? He rose and followed him. That's it. Not much to go off of. The passage moves so quickly and it's too easy to rush by it. But I want to encourage you all in your own devotionals to try this out. Sometimes what we read can be so elusive or terse like this or not within our modern context like this that we often miss the strong implication. And with much discernment and contextualizing the passage, we could possibly relate to it better. So we're going to read verse nine once more, okay? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me and he rose and followed him. Yeah, so I'm not sure what was going on in Matthew's mind. It doesn't really say. But if I were Matthew, I'd imagine that I'd have a million things running through my mind. These are some of the things that I could think of. I can't believe Jesus is calling me. Does he even know what I've done? Oh, he's asking me to leave my job? Can I really leave this behind? or there's something so undeniably powerful and beautiful and moving about Jesus. I actually want to follow him, but I see his other followers, Simon, his brother Andrew, James, his brother John, I see that they're fishermen. I probably cheated them in their fishing business when they try to dock at Capernaum. Would they accept me? Would I get along with these guys? You see, with much prayer and discernment and thoughtfulness, if we could see ourselves in these stories, then we might be able to experience more of the weight of what's happening here. And we might experience more of the weight of God's mercy and grace calling us despite our brokenness. And speaking of which, speaking of Jesus' grace and mercy, this leads us to our second point, heed the compassion of Jesus In verse 10, it says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. In commentaries and other gospel books like Luke 5, 29, it says that they were invited into the house of Matthew. And there are layers to this. According to the ancient Jewish practices, even to enter into an unclean household, it was scandalous Maybe to contextualize it to our day, a better word might be canceled. Just imagine with me for a moment, right? Not someone simply canceled from pop culture for saying something ridiculous and you're just like, oh, you're canceled. But someone canceled for doing something really heinous, okay? Forgive this example, but maybe like a Harvey Weinstein. Someone who was despised beyond expression and rightfully so. But we see that Jesus reclined to share a meal with the many tax collectors and sinners. And here's a painting of what it looked like to recline in the ancient days. Yeah, it's not really the same as us nowadays, right, with a chair and a table. They're all leaning in. It's very intimate. So not only was the act of walking into a sinner's home unsavory, but to share an intimate posture while conversing, eating, sharing a laugh, was beyond what anyone would dare do in that time. So we, just hear that, so we just read that Jesus reclined with some of the most hated and canceled people of his time, to which the Pharisees asked the disciples in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'd say that the Pharisees question at this point or their suspicion is very understandable. Right? One might argue that it's wise and fair to challenge the motives of an up and coming religious leader who is teaching and performing miracles that no one has ever experienced. You know, maybe for various reasons, maybe just out of jealousy. Who does this guy think he is? Matter of fact, early in chapter nine, we read that Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And the scribes say, blasphemy, who do you think you are? Right, but I think it really does come down to this. I think they're being shrewd, right? They're genuine suspicion of Jesus' motives. Have you ever thought of this? Perhaps he, meaning Jesus, was seeking riches through a wealthy but crooked social circle to benefit his ministry, right? We think about this with people nowadays as well. We're cautious of people who are living lavish lifestyles. But Jesus wasn't living a lavish lifestyle. He was just going in to the home of Matthew to eat with him, to commune, to fellowship with him. Right? So Jesus flips the script on them though. He calls them out and what he says is not based on suspicion like that of the Pharisees, but something he knows definitively that is deep in their hearts. Verses 12 and 13, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, let's take a step back and retrace who these religious people are, the Pharisees. You know, too often when we simply, uh, we simply just see them as the bad guys the antagonists like they do all the wrong things they say all the wrong stuff but let me get you to understand their situation and how they got here to this point in history so historically god chose the israelites to be his people and the laws of god 10 commandments and so on if they would live by them and was purpose they were purposed to set his people apart from the other nations so that the other nations would know and witness that Yahweh was the one and true and living God, and this was the way life was meant to be lived. And the way the Israelites would live would be a representation of God's love, justice, and power. But we see that despite God's continued mercy and grace, the Israelites keep having to disqualify themselves in living out God's commands. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was meant to show us how holy God is and how we fall short of it all the time. But the Pharisees had lost sight of that. They thought that they were okay, they measured their qualification as such. At least they were holier than this guy, at least they were better than this gal. At least they were more righteous than these Gentiles or unclean folks. They had become desensitized to being compassionate and having a humble heart before the Lord. Speaking of desensitized, um, when I was in kindergarten, I got into trouble a lot. I don't know if it seems like that nowadays, but maybe that was just like kind of beat out of me or something. But I got to a point where when I heard the teacher say my name, I would just respond with, I know, I know, and just go to timeout. I didn't even know what I did wrong, right? I would just stop in my tracks and be like, okay, I know. No remorse, just protocol. This was the posture of the religious leaders in a nutshell. The religious leaders knew the currency of what to sacrifice for what sin, and as long as they gave a sacrifice to atone for their sin, they were good. At least they thought so. And these religious leaders were the gatekeepers of what came in and out, who were to be accepted and not. Not too different from the role of Matthew taking post at the receipt of custom at the port. Matthew chose money over his nation, his people. The Pharisees chose works-based righteousness over compassion. The Pharisees held their positions of authority and tradition in the highest regard, but had left behind the most important thing that God commanded, their fervor and love for God and compassion for people. So do you see the parallel here with Matthew and the tax collectors and the religious leaders? They were both sinners. They were both operating out of fear. But we see in 1 John 4, 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We see that they put their needs before others. Don't you see that? What would push one to become a traitor of their nation? Yes, I'm sure there are so many external factors, but I would say the bottom line is fear maybe for the tax collector or Matthew, is the fear of living in poverty, the fear of being oppressed, fear of being unimportant. And on the other end, what would push one to be a self-righteous religious leader? Fear of being condemned, fear of being unclean, unworthy, and shamed. If I may, I'd like to challenge you with this question. Do you think the source of your discontentment, anger, anxiety, or fear in you is rooted in the fact that you operate within this paradigm of qualifications? And just as I read Romans 3.20, just because you know the law doesn't mean you can uphold them. It says through the law comes the knowledge of sin, meaning we are made aware of sin, which would then lead us to become more cautious, suspicious, fearful, Shameful. So, what do we do? We make our own laws so that we aren't sinned against, so that we aren't shafted from our neighbors. And we set our own set of qualifiers so only the worthy can enter into our home, both literally and figuratively. So, we just covered man's ways. Now it's time to ask what are Jesus's ways? Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you know the book of Hosea, it's a minor prophet book and it takes place right before the northern kingdom of Israel goes into exile, meaning they were really pushing it with God. They were sinning, but yet they were still sacrificing. Therefore, this response of, I desire your heart, not your acts of religion. The message version says this. I really love this. I'm after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God, not to go to more prayer meetings. Now, this is, this is not a pass for you to not go to prayer meetings. Please come to Saturday morning prayer. That's good. But the, the main idea is that our hearts are so easily driven to think we are righteous by just doing things. So here, Jesus echoes those words of Hosea, and more importantly, the heart of God in saying, I desire your steadfast love over your acts of religion. Mercy in this passage in the Hebrew is, is uh, translated to chesed. And here's the Bible Project's brief description of this word. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Other aspects they add is that it is generous, unconditional, and given to those who are undeserving. So what Jesus is exposing in the Pharisees is that they got lost in the letter of the law rather than upholding the spirit of the law. But Jesus shows us what compassion looks like by entering into the home of a corrupt, crooked, and canceled sinner. He is modeling chesed in this act of drawing near to those who least deserve it in order to show them what life with God looks like. This leads us to our third and final point. Heed the new covenant of Jesus. The old covenant was that of the Mosaic law. If you don't know that, uh, essentially, it's the Ten Commandments and the other rules and regulations and observances mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. And we learned that it was and is impossible to keep all the laws of God. Only Jesus did that. But up until Jesus accomplished what no man could do, People living in the ways of the old covenant kept trying to uphold it or meet its qualifications. And we all know that they would utterly fail. Which is why I think this faith that was supposed to be based in love, mercy, compassion, and justice eventually became stale, oppressive, and fear-led. Verse 14, it says this, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, if you're wondering who these disciples of John is, they're referring to John the Baptist. They're supposed to be the good guys, right? They're disciples of someone that Jesus signed off on. But you see, even they are functioning out of the old ways of achievement and qualifying. And this is a very nuanced part of the passage where, where I think Christians, seasoned Christians, should take heed of this. Because we all see tax collectors of Pharisees, and they seem like two extreme sides of the spectrum that we might not necessarily relate to. But if we haven't made it clear enough, all have fallen, sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And there are no exceptions, not even the disciples of John the Baptist. So might I pose that in the midst of these disciples' passion and fervor, their self-righteousness is exposed. So my first job as a worship leader when I was in California um, we were in a mobile church setting. If you don't know what that is, it just means we didn't have a building. It's so not like we do here at New Life. So uh, what we had to do was rent out a high school. We had to get buy a trailer with all of our equipment. And I was in charge of hitching the trailer in our storage, taking the trailer to the school, unpacking all of our stuff of lights, media, sound, projector, s- instruments, rehearsing, having the service, and then kind of doing the reverse, break it down, clean up, take it back and drop it off in the storage. And if you know something about summers in California, you know it's not pleasant. And I've had many summers back in the day when I was livid when we were breaking down and cleaning up. You know, like thoughts like, man, we just served you, we just served the church. And now we're sweating through our Sunday best At least you could help us a little bit, you know, like pick up a little thing to show that you care. And I remember driving off many of those Sundays feeling tired and empty. And I I later came to understand that this was because I was operating out of self-righteousness. I was holding others to a standard of qualifications that they were not meeting. So then my heart grew bitter. You know, I've learned so much from that season, but even now I struggle and have to repent of my self-righteous tendencies. We all must be vigilant to keep from becoming self-righteous. So you're probably wondering, okay, what are some ways that we might know if we are self-righteous? This is a list adapted from Paul David Tripp's Dangerous Calling, and I've only chosen a few uh, to mention out of the 11, But these are some that we could ask ourselves and be challenged to think, are we self-righteous? Are we getting into that space? So here are a few. We do not respond well when reminded that we need to change. We do not desire others' exhortation or admonition, even getting angry at times. We are not patient with those who mess up, struggle with sin, or have lost their way. We consistently wonder why God has singled us out for our difficulty. We do not see a need to admit or confess our sin. We consistently point out the sin of others with an air of superiority. So how do we combat self-righteousness or resist that temptation? We're gonna take a hard left turn here but I promise we're going to get back to this question. Verse 16 and 17, it says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Wineskins were made of leather, And I'm no leather expert, but based on research, they're supposedly soft and pliable when first constructed. But as the wine ferments in the wineskin, they stretch and become rigid and brittle. So if new wine were to be poured into old wineskins, it would not be able to contain the wine because they've become rigid and brittle. In other words, they're used up and exhausted of its purpose. And Jesus, speaking so beautifully in metaphor here, is saying the old ways of the covenant, striving, rules and regulations, cannot exist with the new way of life that Jesus paves for us in the new covenant. So to go back to this question, how do we combat self-righteousness? We must lean into the truth that we have no need to attempt to qualify for God's favor. Because Jesus has done it in our stead. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's no room for fear of whether you belong. There's no place for comparison of who's more holy than who, and there's no more striving to gain God's favor or affection, because Christ has already shown it to you in full. And so the new covenant is this, it's living in the freedom and joy of being called and accepted as heirs of God's kingdom. We're now liberated from sin and have been given the Holy Spirit to respond accordingly to his will. It also means that all of our endeavors of becoming more like Christ isn't to earn God's favor, but it is in response to his chesed. Okay, so those are lofty words, Dave. What now? What now? Here's some practical applications. I would pose that we go in reverse of those three points that I mentioned. We must delight in the truth and power of the new covenant. What I mean by that is be with God before doing anything for God. The purpose of this is so we may experience and enjoy his presence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states, what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the heartbeat of the worship ministry, the vision of our uh, 2023. And we want to be Mary's and not Martha's, right? Like the story of that is Jesus just all of a sudden said, I'm going to come over. And Martha's like, oh, no, we got to cook. We got to clean. Our house is not uh, suitable for, for this rabbi. But instead, Mary, what she does is she sits at the foot of Jesus, and she listens and takes in and just enjoys in the presence of Jesus. And I say this because there's a big temptation, right, uh, for the music uh, people, for the team. When they get in here, they just want to, you know, bang on the drums and, you know, play a few licks. And we've been making it a point to wait on the Lord in prayer and meditate on his word first so that we're functioning out of the fact that we're his people, and that we're using the gifts that he's given us for his glory. So what I mean for all of us is then spend time with God in the secret place, in his word, in prayer, seeking his will for you and your loved ones. Let everything that you do be an expression of worship and thanksgiving to God. If you were here for it earlier this year, we went through the Sabbath series. Um, if you don't know, just take a, look, a listen to our podcast or watch it on YouTube. But essentially, the idea is we need to slow down, quiet the noise in our lives in a world that forces us to conform to qualifying, take away from the daily grind and fill it with God. Lean into the peace that comes when you wait on him. And it is such a powerful moment when you just try to silence everything and you hear from him and he says, you are my beloved. You don't need to try to gain my favor. I cannot accept you and love you any more than I already do. Let's all live, be in God's presence instead of doing something for God. That's our first step. Second, once we realize our identity as God's children, we then can live out compassionately for those who are broken. A word of caution, we must continually ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our intentions and our heart so that we don't become self-righteous. We always have to ask for God to, to cleanse us, to set our path straight so that our heart and our intentions are aligned to His and finally, we hope that as we live like Jesus in compassion to, towards others, then, then others would come to answer the call of Jesus through how we think, through how we treat one another, through how we witness of what it looks like to live in God's presence. So if you see yourself as a Matthew, one who feels like you don't deserve to be loved or accepted, who has yet to call Jesus' um, call, answer Jesus' call, I want to encourage you to trust in Christ and follow him. Matthew had a lot to give up, but he gained so much more in following Jesus. Come and taste and see the steadfast love of God. You don't have to qualify for God's love because Jesus has already done it for you. And may we as the church who lives in the freedom and joy of the new covenant no more be bound from striving and earning, but generously loving and being compassionate like Christ our Savior. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for drawing near to us when we were so undeserving, you came down, you drew near, and you showed us what compassion looks like. Would you instill in us, all of us, what this looks like, what this means in all of our lives and our seasons? I'm sure we're all being challenged to some degree, but this person, no, not that person. That person definitely doesn't deserve to be loved by me. Lord forgive us. Spirit convict our hearts. Change us so that we might look like Jesus, we might do as Jesus did, in being gracious and drawing near to those who least deserve it. For some of us, for all of us who are who are uh, believers, followers of Christ, we ask you would protect us from self-righteousness. Would you keep us humbled and grateful as we continue to lean into your presence and as we discover the power and the truth of who you are, that we just can't help but be humbled, brought down to our knees, and grateful for your love that you show us. May there be no place for self-righteousness, for pride, for all of those things point to fear and not to love. God, move mightily in our church. That when people see us, when people visit us, that they would truly experience the chesed, your your steadfast love, your mercy in all of us. So work within our hearts, in our lives, God. In Jesus' name we pray.